Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room. I'm Al Hunt here with my partner, James Carville. James and I have a combined 98 years of participating or covering American politics. We'll draw on that each week with insights about what's really going on in the 2020 national political race and throw in our take on impeachment. It'll be lively. It'll be unpredictable, and it's going to be fun, right, James? I hope so. It better be, but it's not any fun. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> at, my, at my age, I'm, I'm not in, engaged in any non-fun things. We're going to have as much fun as we can the, the whole way through. we got some interesting guests. We're going to do a quirky thing or two here at air, and, you know, we'll try to remember as much as we can from our 98 years of experience, but we, <laughs> probably a lot a lot we're going to have to leave on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I think if we can if we can get 60%, we'll be doing okay of that 98%. But, you know, we're going to have some fabulous guests starting now with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. James, we may have peaked with our first show with our guest, who is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. We're never going to do any better never, than that. Never, but never, Madam but Speaker, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. And this want to be is, born on third base. That's what that, we're Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and this is this is her first interview since the House uh, voted to authorize the rules and procedures for continuing on the impeachment inquiry, a, a, a huge vote. Uh, and now that you've said all of that, uh, you have said this has to be fair, it has to be thorough, uh, you've, you've set up those procedures. Can you finish this by year end? Because some people don't want it to go into the election year. Well, I, I certainly hope so, but we will just go where the truth takes us, and that will be up uh, to the committee, uh, the uh, Intelligence Committee, and then go to the Judiciary Committee. When we um, all agreed that we would get together and talk some politics and policy, little did we know that it would be just minutes after this wow. vote would be taken on the floor. So again, this evolves. We I had no idea last week that we would be doing this this week. We are we are fortunate indeed. I am. Uh, there is the question: Should this and this the hearings will make a difference, obviously, and what you, what comes out. But I get a sense that you would prefer a when I say narrow, I mean a focused uh, uh, focus on the Ukrainian uh, effort to shake down the Ukrainians to dig dirt on Joe Biden and obstruction rather than broaden it to talk about Mueller and emoluments and all that. Is that fair? Well, I don't ignore all that Mueller has put forth. There may be some obstruction of justice there. I don't know. That's up to the committees to examine. But what this is about for us is that no one is above the law. That is just the principle. We take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. The Constitution has three co-equal branches of government. The president says he can usurp that power by saying Article 2 says I can do whatever I want. So this is about the republic, if we can keep it, in, in Franklin's words. This isn't about his personality, his policies, his behavior. That's all for the election. This is about was there a violation of his oath of office to the Constitution of the United States? And how do we honor ours with dignity, with prayerfully, and with calmness, but nonetheless with the responsibility the Constitution gives us? One of the violations could be any attempt to cover up what has occurred. And the other day, the colonel from the National Security Council said that that transcript they released on the call to the Ukrainian president, that there was important things that were deleted. Do you think that could be part of a cover-up? Again, the committees will examine the facts, the truth, and take us to where we need to go. But with all of these things, we want to have as much clarity as possible. So there may be some irresistible other charges that could be made against the president. But we want to have the most ironclad, constitution-based argument as we go forward. James? Speaker, you are, uh, I would say, most famously skeptical about beginning this process. What was the kind of triggering event in your mind that, that made you go from being skeptical to at least supporting a, a, a further look in this? September 17th, 2019, which was the anniversary of the adoption of our Constitution, September 17th, 1787. 
All right, you old cowboys and cowgirls back home, remember that date. We learned a little history here. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the very day that this issue exploded, that the President of the United States used his office to undermine our national security by withholding congressionally uh, voted funds for military assistance to Ukraine, undermine our national security to the benefit of Putin, uh, jeopardizes the integrity of our elections by saying this will be granted or withheld depending on if you get me, help me in the election, essentially, and in my view, a violation of his oath of office. And that was that day, September 17th this year. And, and this is why I was hesitant in the beginning to go down this path. This is very divisive. But indeed, the president has been divisive. And, and in doing so, he's gone down a path where I question his uh, loyalty to the oath that he took, the oath of office. So uh, the public opinion changed dramatically. When I went out to make my statement, it was 59 oppose 34 support. The, um, and that has changed as people see a path and understand why we made this transition based on information that was readily available. Now, let me just say this, because the president says to me, hey, you see the notes, the notes are with him. We would have never seen the notes if there had not been a whistleblower. So it's not as if this is something that everybody said, everything's hunky-dory around here, what are you making a fuss about? They would never, we would have never seen those notes had there not been a whistleblower going to the inspector general who declared it credible and of concern, and then the process went forward from there. And, and do you think it's important to get the rest of that transcript, or is that something that, that may not be relevant uh, before you were able to have a final resolution? I think it may be relevant, but I don't think I think it'd be hard to get. I don't think that they're going to be saying, "If only you saw the whole transcript, it's exculpatory." I don't think they would do. I don't <laughs> think they leave out stuff that's exculpatory. Yeah, and there's there's some people who think, "Let's not make a fuss about the uh, the transcript and it's you know what where where it is. Let's just focus on what he did." Right. Uh, uh, do you suspect that they will subpoena the transcript at some point? I don't know. Don't know. That's don't a decision's okay. decision. So when this broke, I, I told New York Times, let the Senate do it. And I, this is my theory, and see if you share it. I would much rather be a House Democrat voting on this than a Senate Republican. I, I, I think that, that this politically, people were saying, this is a big risk for the Democrats. And I was saying, no, I don't think so. I think this is going to be a big risk for Tillis and McSally and Gardner and Collins and Ernst and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I know people have constitutional duties to discharge, but it, it seems to me that the politics of this are lining up pretty good for the Democrats. Well, the more people know about the president's behavior and his cavalier attitude, Article 2 says, I can do whatever he want. I want. He wants to take money from defense to spend on a wall, even though Congress has appropriated the money differently. But I mean, just to your point, the I never, politics never entered my decision whether to go forward or not. It was more guided by e pluribus unum from many one. How do we unify the country? How do we not contribute further to the uh, what's happening because of his, because of the way he is. So, so that was really it. It wasn't political. And we have an oath of office that we take, so we can't say politics stood in the way. By the same token, we cannot go as the slowest ship, and that would be the United States Senate. If they don't want to honor their oath of office, if they don't want to strengthen the institution in which they serve, if they just want to abdicate their responsibilities and be shields for the president, that should no, by no means be a measure of how faithful we are to our oath of office. Trump, of course, claims that he's a victim here. Has he told you that? And what do you say to him when he says that? I don't know that he has said that to me in just those words, but it's a tactic. It's a tactic, and uh, it's, let me just say, He's the president of the United States. When he became president, I thought we have to do whatever we can to help him be a good president for the people. Our whole, our whole agenda is for the people. This initiative to continue to go down further down the inquiry path 
is for the people, defending our democracy for the people. I don't even want to go into a psychoanalysis of this president, but I do think an intervention is warranted. Policy, personally, in every way, is something that's very strange. Here's one out of left field that will surprise you. It only would be asked in a podcast. Another critic, surprising critic, was Kenneth Starr, who was the Clinton prosecutor, who said that the House is engaged in a destructive frenzy, that Trump did nothing corrupt, and impeachment is bad for the country. My goodness, how times have changed. <laughs> when he would take a personal indiscretion and turn it into an impeachment, and doing so in a way, I can tell you, I was here, they practically pulled up, uh, opened the trunk of a car, threw these things practically on the street without even showing to the president first. What we have afforded to the president and what we put forth today is... Um, better than what they ever gave in terms of respect and opportunity to President Clinton, or even to President Nixon. We've come a long way since then. I don't, uh, that's, that's really quite sad. It's really sad because they know, they must know, they must have some judgment about the um, Constitution of the United I, I, States. I, I don't know the hypocrisy what to say. Is, the hypocrisy is so raging and the inconsistency is so obvious that I, I don't, for most Republicans in general, not just Starr. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a man that was so appalled by what President Clinton did, and yet when he was president of Baylor, he, he, while he was president, was the biggest rape scandal in the history of college athletics. And I don't. And if this guy comes back and runs his mouth, I, I, I have. He must be just impervious to, he, to, he to any shame. Well, let me say that I don't know what I'm talking about right now, but my path is always follow the money. It's about a future job or opportunity or appointment or something. You you mentioned both the Clinton and the Nixon uh, impeachment. You're a student uh, of this institution. What have you learned from those two, um, you know, extraordinary events in 74 and 98 as far as it affects well, the Well, the, in my view is that, uh, well, I had a different view about the impeachment of Clinton. I, I thought that proceeding with that investigation was using fruit from a forbidden tree, and they shouldn't have even gone down that path. I was one that was very defensive of, of President Clinton, not, not of his personal behavior. What a jerk and to do such a thing, but what a wonderful president. But I, I just thought that that I, I, people. some people said to me, well, don't let any of our candidates say what you're saying. I said, no, but this is what I believe. I don't think that should have even taken place. Okay, so other things evolved. Somebody wants to not be fully um, telling the truth because to save the embarrassment to his family or something like that. Okay, then we then we go down that path. In terms of Nixon, what was interesting to me is until they had the tapes, the Republicans were nowhere on the impeachment of Nixon. And even when they had the tapes, public opinion did not swing until the very end. Right. And, and, and in our case... We have the tapes from day one. This is smoking gun day one, the, the telephone. So one of the things they had, that I, I covered the House and the Judiciary Committee in 19, that's how old I am. Right, we must have been, and <laughs> but, for the college newspaper, no doubt. One of the things they had then, there was a collaborative effort among Republicans and Democrats, even those who disagreed. Bill Cohen was a Republican freshman. Uh, the John Rhodes, the leader, worked with Majority Leader O'Neill uh, even the Nixon defenders like Charles Wiggins from your state, uh, you know, at least understood the, the, the incredibly high-level importance of this. You're not going to get that this time. I mean, the Republicans are determined, I gather, to make a circus out of this. Yeah, they are, and that's really, I, I don't see how they can honor their oath of office as they engage in the circus. But I, I do find that there is, listening to them as I do listen, a, a tremendous um, poverty of knowledge and information both of substance and of the Constitution of the United States. That's the only way that I think that one could justify their ignoring the facts, ignoring the truth, ignoring the Constitution, ignoring the oath of office that they take. It's really sad. It is. I, uh, and by yeah. the way, I say to our Republican friends, take back your party. This country needs a strong Republican party, a strong Democratic party. You have been hijacked by people who don't even believe in governance. This is a typical Washington question, but you, you know a lot of Republican members. If this was a secret vote, how many Republicans in the House do you think would have voted for this? 
I don't know. I think there you have a room full of enablers. These are people who, you know, people criticize. They say, well, they must all disagree with the president on this, that, and the other thing. And I know this isn't a policy question. But these people here have been worse and for longer than, than Trump on any issue. Denial of climate, women's right to choose, LGBTQ, uh, equality, uh, gun safety, immigration in a fair way, a fair way to protect our country, and uh, name any subject, fairness in our economy. They've been there and worse. So he's their hero. He's their guy. Maybe a handful. A handful. So during the, the, during, the Clinton administ- during the Clinton impeachment, a central part of our strategy, obviously, was to trivialize the underlying offense. So, okay, I mean, really, for this, are we really going to go through that? They don't have that option. No. As, as I go back and I think about, we were able to present Starr as a partisan, prissy, prudish guy, and he, of course, he played the role perfectly for us. And the second part of our strategy was to say, yeah, so what? Right. This this strikes me as they're going to have a really difficult time executing that strategy going right. forward. Right. Well, they're two different things. We're talking about personal indiscretion and then how that was treated. We're talking here about the national security of our country. And as I said to the president that day in his office a couple of weeks ago, was it? Which he foolishly tweeted out. But he tweeted out. <laughs> thank you very much. You, I mean, really, uh, thank you. All roads lead to Putin. Right. Who benefits by giving Russia a stronger foothold in the Middle East? Russia. Putin. Who benefits by withholding military assistance to the uh, to the Ukraine? Uh, the Ukraine lost, you know, thousands of people at the. Uh, with the violence from Russia in this invasion, incursion into the eastern part of Ukraine, and we're not going to give them the military assistance that Congress voted. Who who benefits from his questioning our commitment to NATO and Article 5 of NATO? Putin. I didn't even go into that. That's those three. I said all roads lead to Putin, but I didn't even go into and that you believe him rather than our national, our intelligence community as to his disruption of our elections in 2016. I didn't want to get, I mean, he's melting down. I didn't want him to fall off the edge. Before we go, this is a busy day for you, I know, but let me, just a couple political questions. Obamacare passed because of you. You got it through the House. You have long advocated building on it, making it more accessible, making it more affordable. But there's a huge element within your party now that wants to basically discard it and go to a government-run single payer, including some of the leading presidential candidates. Uh, if that were to happen and and the party were to adopt that, would would that be a winner or a loser? It wouldn't be, I don't think it would be. A, here's the thing. I think, think that we a, should all just say we want health care for all Americans. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is on par there with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. It is a major accomplishment. Millions more people have access to health care, probably 20. But that's not the point. The 150 million families got better benefits, no pre-existing condition, uh, no uh, lifetime limits or even annual limits, and all the other things that affect so many people in our country, apart from those who are getting the additional care. So the point would be if, if we, the point is to eventually get to a place where we have 100% coverage, which is our goal, then the path would be to follow the Affordable Care Act. If it leads to Medicare for all as an option, so be it. But to say we're throwing this out because we're going to have this and you're not going to have your private insurance, I just think, first of all, is um, I don't support that. But when I talk to these folks because... You know, I've, I've been having my single payer. I said, I had those signs in my basement from 30 years ago. You know, I, I get the point. We, we want everybody to have it. Now, we have a responsibility to do it. I don't, I don't, uh, it's a big price tag. The federal government people say, well, you'll raise taxes. It, I think there's, look, we've had three hearings. Judiciary Committee, no, excuse me. Rules Committee, Ways and Means Committee, and Budget Committee on uh, Medicare for All. We're respectful of that idea. Put it on the table. Let's see what it means in terms of benefits to the patients and what it means to the cost to the patient, to business uh, families, and to the country. So this is a, a big question. I 
I just think that if, if people want to talk about that, they really need to know. I mean, I don't think they want a single payer where government is um, administering the health care, but some people think that's what that means. So we have to have clarity. In the meantime, we have a we must do better in what we do. We, we want to um, reauthorize some of the things that have expired. We want to expand some of the things we should have done in the first place, and now you can see in its implementation that there's more. We are on a really good path to this, and I whatever enthusiasms a new president may bring in, it's not something you can do by executive order. Right. So, uh, Rahm Emanuel, who was too intimidated by you to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't want said to... that his idea is to have, let people buy into the federal plan, which is, a, you know, which is one of the, the classic great plans. And uh, you know, I wonder when members of Congress who are Medicare eligible when they have health issues, that they pay for it with the federal plan or the Medicare plan, but uh, you know that that that's a good way. The federal plan is very well negotiated, and maybe we can get people in on that. Agreed, agreed. I, I think there are all kinds of ways to do it, but and if you want to say Medicare, if you wish, because Medicare is not as good as benefit as the Affordable Care Act. There's no catastrophic. There, you know, there there. Uh, and then they said, well, they can just go buy another policy. I said, well, that's not what you're advertising out there. And if and I'm all for, and we hopefully will be able to increase the benefits for Medicare when we do our HR3, our uh, Elijah E. Cummings Lower Drug Cost Now bill, which will reap much, um, benefits to the fe to federal budget, use some of that money to expand Medicare benefits. That's a debate we have to have here. However, it is, Affordable Care Act is a better benefit. So again, um, I think that everybody, this is what campaigns are about. You put ideas out there about your vision. It may not be the practical application of it, but we should be respectful of everyone's enthusiasms. At some point, though, I just have two words. Remember November and where we have to win. And we intend fully to be, by this November, to practically lock in our victory for next year as this engine moves of the House Democrats to help win gov state legislative governorships, Senate races, to keep our eye on the Electoral College as to where we can add to our numbers with the additionality of helping win those states James, for Democratic James, president. James, the speaker has gotten us off to a good start. Now it's up to us. A lot yeah, of pressure lot on of pressure us to dies. continue this thing. Just finally, this, this is an incredibly tense time. It's a really important time for the country. You're a workaholic. I mean, no one works harder than Nancy Pelosi. What do you do to relax? Eat more chocolates? Chocolate is, um, first, I'm Italian-American, and I think that a lot of my energy springs from that. Chocolate, the love of my dear husband and family. Um, I relax. What I look forward to all day is doing my crossword puzzle in the tub at the end of the day. Oh, wow. That's it. Just I have a, 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 a little civics lesson for our podcast. This is in the speaker's office, there's only one kind of chocolate that is served, <laughs> <laughs> and that would be one that is made in San Francisco. There you go. <laughs> no M&Ms here. <laughs> so I, to some extent... All politics is still local. There it is. One of my other favorite speakers said, all politics is local. Uh, right. And in terms of health care, it well. is um, personal. But we do have to win this presidency. I just want to leave you this note. Uh, our country is great. Our founders built something so visionary, and we're eternally grateful to them. And even our country can withstand one term. Two terms be very hard. The judgeships, the courts, the policy the air our children breathe, the water they drink. We, we must win the presidential election. Remember November. Madam Speaker, on this momentous day, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being with us. Thank you well, very much. Well, I was much. looking forward to a little, shall we say, comic relief here after we saw <laughs> that. Oh, oh, <laughs> you know, Speaker, but one of the things that people say, oh, we're going to win, we're going to win. Look at United Kingdom. Boris Johnson is a fool. They have people switching from one side to the other when he's speaking. Yet, he will probably win a snap election because Jerry Coleman has made himself so unacceptable. And this is not you, this is not a gimme thing. You could lose this. You could throw it right over the fence. No, I understand, but I you know, know what? Know. We have to, and we try to, with our races, own the ground in our mobilization, message right mainstream, 
mainstream. I'm a left-wing San Francisco liberal, so I can say to people, That's the old days. we're going mainstream <laughs> and money. MMM, you talked about MMMs and right. M. And mainstream money. Mobilize. We don't agonize over him. We organize, and we fully intend to have a big election next year. But again, one, day, one good day, one good week, one good month, one big election. James, this is our day. We have Mr. Inside and Mr. Outside. Nobody is more versed in what's happening in politics a year out from the 2020 election than Charlie Cook, who has overcome his Louisiana background to become an institution with a must-read Cook political report. And no one is more versed in the underlying basics and fundamentals of American politics than Thomas Byrne Etzel, great political reporter, now columnist for the New York Times. Tom also knows the 2020 inside and Charlie the broader picture, so we really have scored big. Uh, James, my guess is you have a couple thoughts or questions. Well, I just did the math, and we have 98 years of experience in participating, uh, covering American politics. And between Charlie and Tom, that when you add it all up, there's 199 years of experience of something on this set, which I don't know, but I doubt that that has happened very many times before on any kind of a communication, television, radio, podcast, uh, you name it. So, great appeal for millennials. Right, great yeah. appeal for millennials, <laughs> man. I tell you what, if we could just remember like a third of the stuff we know, we'd have a hell of a show here, <laughs> wouldn't we? <laughs> uh, so uh, let me just start here. Uh, I, I'm Got no, the ABC Washington Post poll, which I, I think most people agree is a pretty good amount of those pretty good, has Trump approval now at 74 among Republicans. In, in your guys' judgment, where does it have to get where people really get scared? I, I would say 60% starts to get scared because that means you're going to get some areas and some districts uh, where it's below 50 uh, and you start seeing defections from those. Right, uh, Trump cannot afford to see uh, any significant defection beyond, say, Mitt Romney uh, in the Senate. Uh, but you get below that. That's when people like Susan Collins are going to get dicey. Uh, all the uh, con- competitors in close Senate races, and there's about four or five that are. Look, uh, Cory Gardner is another. Uh, that starts becoming real problematic in the purple and blue states. I, I'm I'm a little skeptical, A, that it could get down to 60. I mean, of course, the 74 is down from Not the yet. 85 to 90 yes. where, 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 where it used to be. Cause, but there's, you know, 35 to 40 percent that are going to be with President Trump no matter what, no right. matter what's found. No, right. But, but to be honest, there is no – there is no tolerance for dissent in the Republican Party. I mean, you saw what happened to Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee, Jeff Flake from Arizona, uh, Mark Sand—you know where they couldn't run for re-election. Mark Sanford lost his primary. That uh, the Congressman Francis Rooney two weeks ago announced that he would consider supporting impeachment and had to announce his retirement the next day. Um, there's just you know, in between the people that love President Trump and everything he does. And the ones that are just sort of bought in with tax cuts, economy, you know, regulation, mm-hmm. judges, I, I, you know, I, I think these, I think these Republican members are so terrified, uh, not just of President Trump but his supporters, that I don't think he could possibly reach a number that you would have any significant number bail out, particularly anything like twenty Republican senators. One more question to both of them, and turn it over to Al. Uh, everybody was saying about the Democrats taking up impeachment to political danger. And I'd ask both of you to, to comment on this statement. I would say this. I would much rather be a House Democrat right now than a Senate Republican. I think it's an easy, I think it's an easier vote. Oh, a much easier vote. I think there are a lot of Republican senators for whom it is going to be a difficult vote. They do have this real problem that if, if they were to vote for impeachment, they're going to infuriate a significant part of their base – that could just not show up for them, and that would kill them on uh, general election day. Right. Uh, conversely, they, they uh, have significant middle-of-the-road uh, proponents right. who say Trump is a sleazebag. Uh, they are really caught betwixt and between. For Democrats, clearly from the uh, voting we've seen so far, 
uh, it's been an easy shot, and and only uh, two Democrats uh, felt they could needed to defect out of the whole bunch. Well, you know, I mean, you look at Republican senators, and there are three that are just going to have a really tough race no matter what and could lose if impeachment didn't exist. Uh, Martha McSally in Arizona, uh, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in, in, in Maine. So impeachment may could theoretically seal their fate, but, you know, I, they're I, already I not, in deep I, trouble. I, but really, Tom Tillis and, and, and Purdue in Georgia, those are the only two people that are on the bubble that I think it could. I mean, Joni Ernst in Nebraska is not going to lose because Iowa, of impeachment. Right. John Corn or Iowa, John Cornyn in Texas is not going to lose because of impeachment. I mean, so I, I – Charlie, let me go back for a minute because I just have seen clips – and talk to some people out there. Joni Ernst has been struggling at town halls out there, and the polls apparently have, you know, she's still ahead of, of Greenfield, whatever her name is. But uh, but are you sure that that's a slam well, dunk for I'm her? Say, no, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk. I'm saying that impeachment, you know, if, if something was going on that she loses, I don't think it's going to be because right. of impeachment. It's going to be because small town rural voters did not turn out in the extraordinary numbers that they did in 2016, for example, and that the suburbs around Des Moines was on, was, was on they were on fire. Or the farmers. You know, uh, uh, well, the suburbs going the other way. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but I don't think, I mean, there'd be other reasons why they'd be in trouble. Um, but no, I don't think it's a slam dunk, yeah. but I think you get past McSally, Gardner, Collins, Tillis, and Purdue, and wow, that's... Tough that's, territory. Yeah, that really is. Tom, you agree? Uh, I mean, I think there is this potential for a wave. Uh, it's, it's only potential at this point, and the Democrats, especially in who they pick for the top of the ticket, could blow it uh, and lose the whole... Uh, momentum that they have. But I think there is an underlying potential for this to turn into a a second wave election, really. 2018 was the first. Uh, And a lot will depend on how well Democrats handle the impeachment process. Uh, But but it's very iffy at this point. But to me, for Tom Tillis and David Perdue to lose, that means there was a wave. I'm factoring the wave in. I mean, you don't need a wave for McSally, Gardner, Collins to go go Democrat. You do need a wave. I mean, there's a big gap. I am confident that Tillis is behind right now. Okay. I mean, I mean, yeah, not, in that case, he's behind somebody that's that's unknown. Yeah, but, but Charlie, you're, right. you're, you're, you're right about Georgia, but North Carolina, I think, is more purple than that. But, you know, it's becoming a swing state. But the thing is, for, for Democrats to get over the hump right. Right. with okay. relatively unknown candidates, they, right. I, right. I think the wave, the wave would get them over the top. I mean, right. it, it, it's yes, it's becoming purple. Right. But I'm throwing in the wave I mean, yeah, yeah. for those two. Right. Do you I, I, both agree the House is a done deal? There's no way yeah. Republicans can take it back? Well, I don't say no way, but 95% chance that Democrats hold it. I agree pretty much. Yeah. Let, let's talk about a couple. And, James, I want you to weigh in right. uh, big time. But I, I want to look at a couple states that fascinate me. Tom, you've written a lot about some of those Sunbelt, including Texas even. Uh, you didn't say it's turning purple, but you said, you know, it's moving. And it may move faster than people think. And, and Arizona. Uh, just tell me where you think they both stand right now politically. Uh, I think Arizona has a good chance of becoming a, a shifting to a purple state status. Uh, and I think Democrats have a good shot at the Senate there. Um, I don't know what Charlie would say. But, uh, but the interesting thing about Texas in particular, and it's true actually all in, throughout the South, is you're seeing upscale suburbs turning blue. Oh, that's where the Republicans have been taking it on the chin. Districts like George W. Bush's home district, places in Houston and in Dallas that were once, they were really the original Republican Party in the South way back in the Eisenhower years. This is where the sort of reformist Republican Party began. They are now leading the charge, moving to the Democratic Party. These these well-educated, white affluent suburbanites do not like Trump, and they are showing it in the South, which is intriguing as a process. 
Well, part, yeah, part of it, you know, for Arizona and Texas, we've always we've been saying for a long time they're gradually becoming purple. But I think for too long we focused because of the rising minority vote there when it really it was suburbanites coming from other states and that bringing non-Texan voting patterns into Texas. So that's what's actually powered it more than Latino. Right. Um, and I think in all four of those states, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, all four of them are, are, have a huge influx I mean, that's the difference between those states, between Georgia, North Carolina, and Louisiana or Mississippi or South, where they don't have that influx of -of out-of-state. You know, Obama carried North Carolina in 08. Um, um, McCain carried the the longtime North Carolina residents by a pretty sizable margin. And Obama won narrowly by carrying those newcomers by a fairly. And there are a lot more newcomers coming in. Let me turn it around for a second, Charlie, and go to Wisconsin. Uh, my my former colleague, guy I respect a lot, Frank Wilkinson, went out there, and what he really reported was that the Republicans are confident out there that there is a what, what he called reserve troops, namely non-college educated whites who did not vote in 2016, who were there to be had by Trump in 2020. I think there are. Um, the question is, are there more of those? I mean, what we're seeing is a realignment taking place in this country. We're seeing a white college-educated, suburban, not exclusively, but a whole lot of women. They're moving out of the Republican Party or away from independence towards Democrats. But simultaneously, you have a lot of working-class whites, non-college degree whites, particularly in small-town rural areas. They used to be Democrat. They're moving towards the Republican Party. And in those three states that were the surprise states for 2016, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, they were disproportionately uh, with those non-college whites. They're also we're the industrial states that between trade, technology, automation, a lot of people have come on the losing, you know, the losing end of the, of the six. So I, I think there are some, but the question is, is it, does it net out? And in those three states, maybe, you know, it, it, it might, but in these other four that we were talking about, the Arizonas and Texas, I mean, clearly there are a lot more suburban than there are small town rural. Right. That's really part of the whole, the second big shift, which is part of this realignment. The growing areas in the country are going Democratic and the stagnant areas are going Republican. Uh, the data, Hillary only won something like 400 counties out of 3,000. But that uh, 63% of the gross national product of the United States came from those 400 counties, and only 40, less than 40%, 37% came from the 2,700 counties that voted for uh, Trump. They are, and the process is going more and more. Uh, so you're getting this sort of bizarre the, the Democrats are the winners and the Republicans are the losers. Uh, how long a losing coalition right. can hold up is, a, is an interesting question. But for the moment, Trump capitalized on the losers and won with them. Whether he can do that again uh, is a real question. I mean, I think Tom's right with the, the demographic trends are favoring Democrats so much. But I think 2016 um, was something of an anomaly and that uh, that election was half about about Donald Trump, but it was probably half about Hillary Clinton. All right. I mean, she had about 25 right. years of accumulated baggage. And, you know, I like to say right. that Bill Clinton, at least until Me Too, had, was covered in Teflon. Right. She was covered in Velcro. Right. It's just stuff stuck I, to her. I, I, it, was, it was sort of curious to see that the State Department IG said the email story was nothing. It would have been glad if it wouldn't have been the worst judgment I've ever heard in my life. And it's a you know, the blah, blah, blah. But and also it would have been nice if the New York Times would have reported that, uh, that, that Russia wasn't trying to help Trump. But I'm not going to get into that right now. Let's, oh, let's yeah, move it on. Bought, it bought yeah. Republicans four more years before Democrats right. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get into yeah. that, and I'm, I'm going to move on. Just to make one point is John Bell carried Jefferson Parish and got 26% which is the yeah. birthplace of the, the Republican Party. Of yeah. 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 David Train was from it. Is evidence more evidence to the fact that all of the first counties of a parish in the country that was turning red are now turning back blue. Yes. <laughs> you know, and Same was, was true in uh, Alabama. Uh, Mountain, Mountain Brook. Mountain Brook. Uh, went for uh, Doug, Doug Jones, Jones by a big margin, I think. 
Uh, and that was that was the birthplace of Alabama's Republican Party way back when. Correct. Uh, so it's a really strange flip we're getting. Well, and that's true in the South, but it's also true. I mean, I grew up, uh, James teases me about this, on Philadelphia's main line. It was the center of Eisenhower yes. country. I mean, yeah. people just... Uh, and right now it votes, you know, 55, 60, 62 percent Democratic. You know, there are two things that that technically have nothing to do with politics that have become great predictors. And one is population density and the other is uh, education, education, where education basically split at four year college degree. It, it, it's it's just moving like a freight train towards Democrats. Right. Um, so it's. There's a real problem, though, for Democrats in this, in that here is the party that says it's the party of the working class, that Joe Sixpack and Jill Sixpack, but it just isn't anymore. It's no. the party of the uh, the the, the uh, Volvo driver. Right, right. <laughs> and it's hard for that party to make the claim in in places like Michigan uh, and uh, Wisconsin that we're with you regular working guys, when really they are an elite. And an elite Democratic Party has a lot of internal communication problems. And given right. the structure of the Electoral College and the Senate, yeah. Democrats have a problem. You can't get buried in small-town, low America by 30 of the country people. elects 52 senators. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so, that, that, so this leads me to I, – I agree – it's setting up nicely. The Trump approval is not very good. The, the, the demographics are coming our way. We're doing better here. I have two gut-wrenching fears going into this. The first gut-wrenching fear that I have is I actually think this left turn, I mean this extreme left turn, can really be damaging. And if you look at the U.K., Boris Johnson is horribly unpopular, a, hor- a, a complete fool, who would probably want to snap election because the British Labor Party has made itself unacceptable. And my other great fear is Tom Metzl has written about this. Other people who I know and respect have said this, that the, the Democratic technology deficit with the Republicans is appalling and it's bad. And I am going to spend a lot of my time screaming and yelling about this. So I've asked both of you to comment on, on, on both of those two things, is the, the left turn and the, and, the, and the technology deficit. Charlie, why don't you take the left turn and then, Tom, you go to the technology, which you just wrote a, a, a masterful piece about. Yeah, I, I, I think – I don't think there are a lot of Democrats that have philosophically changed their minds that much. I think what happened is when small – when, when – Non-college whites left the Democratic Party. It they were the most conservative, least liberal component within the party. You lop off starting in the '90s with in the South, and then uh, after that in the in the after the turn of the century uh, in the North, you lop that off, and the center of gravity in the party is going to go is going to go left. I, I think to me the question on this one is: What is the Democratic Party's risk tolerance? How much are they willing to risk reelecting President Trump to do what really feels good? Right. Uh, you know, the most conservative, I, I would argue the most conservative element of the Democratic Party right now might be older blacks. Well, now, now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, that, that, it's amazing that, that you could say that and both of you would look at me like I'm not crazy. Yeah. On that point, well, we, I don't we, think we talked to Nancy Pelosi, Charlie, uh, earlier, and uh, she basically said, and I am, um, this is not an exact quote, that a single payer to run on single payer would be a disaster for Democrats. Yeah, I mean, first of all, anything, anything that involves privatize, getting rid of private health insurance, where thirty nine percent of Democratic voters mm-hmm. have private health insurance, and when you look at union members, all of that, man, that's that's yes. deadly. But the other thing is, anything that smacks of massive tax increases and it's not that democrats are like innately uh, you know uh, anti-tax it's what would lose i mean when walter mondale we, we we were probably all four of us in the in the room when 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 vice former vice president mondale said you know reagan and i will both president reagan and i will both raise your taxes you know he won't say it i will and that's how you lose 49 states exactly. um the thing is the the feeling of well if we go with this man this is you know, this is how you lose an election. That's the risk tolerance that that um, I think Democrats need to, to really think about. But it's private health insurance specifically that I think uh, um, 
really hurts if, if Democrats embrace this. Tom, talk about why the Republicans are so far ahead, or Trump rather, so far ahead on technology, and can the Democrats close the gap, and what do they have to do? All right. Well, technology, this whole thing, it started with George W. Bush got way ahead in 2004. Then Obama uh, pulled way ahead uh, for the Democrats. But then in 2016, Brad Parcell, if I'm pronouncing his name right, I don't know. I think you are. I went, I really invested in this while Hillary Clinton did not. And they have developed a very sophisticated ways of identifying Republican-leaning voters and non-voters. That's the important thing for them. They want to get, turn out every uh, potential voter that they can, and that includes registering them. And they've developed te- techniques that are too hard to describe on uh, on the radio of, of pulling up all kinds of information that you don't know you're giving away. Uh, and the Democrats, in the meantime, have been stuck in a battle against each other where all their efforts on Facebook and on uh, uh, other uh, digital out, uh, outlets are all geared to promoting their own candidacy and not promoting the Democratic Party. It's a And the Democratic Party, without a candidate, has a hard time doing this, and they don't have anyone except perhaps Priority USA and, a couple, and one other, I forget which, to, trying to do some of this work. But it's really peripheral compared to the very dogged, hard work, detailed. And you have to – because of this all new technology, you have to keep testing the validity of what you're doing. It's just just a a, a very long and hard process to make sure what you're doing is actually working. The irony is in the 2012 RNC autopsy, part of it was Republicans have to do better with digital – but that was that was the only thing they actually did. They did out of the and so this happened post 2012 election between 12 and 16. This happened, but that was one of the that that was the only part. They they ripped all the other chapters and threw right. away. All right, guys, let's cut Technology, to the chase. Technology, we, we, we're getting the hook, but we, let's cut to the chase now. We're going to go and 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 let's say who's going to be the Democratic nominee. And the numbers have to add up to 100. And I'm going to give you five choices. I'll even go first. Going to be Biden, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, or a candidate out there, some kind of savior who's going to come in. I'd say Warren at 40, Biden at 25, Buttigieg at 20, Bernie at 10, and 5 for an outsider. Who wants to go next? I'll go next. I just think any predictive thing with levels of engagement this high yeah. is, is, is very dangerous. And I, I noticed that it was a New Hampshire poll, and they had sent Warren at 20. Well, you know she's running 100% ID in New Hampshire. All right. It tells me that there's a lot that there's a lot going to happen. This is not a kind of a year where you you, you kind of know what's going to happen in advance. I I, I, th- I, th- I think I think all right, we're a year out. You're right, Jim. A year out. A year out. Come on. I mean, I'm, don't, I'm predicting turmoil. That's you're, all I you're, can predict. You're, 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 I mean, you're going to be a cop out. Again, I'm so disappointed. Uh, you'd be disappointed. I mean, the Cajun will not rise to the occasion. I Tom Hetzel Charlie. Tom, Tom Hetzel Charlie Cook. My colleague Amy Walters uh, says the conventional wisdom is that Joe Biden can't win a Democratic nomination. Right. Elizabeth Warren can't win a general election. And I think that is the conventional wisdom. I would give Biden, Klobuchar, Buttigieg together a 55 percent chance. Right. And Warren and everybody else, 45, which 45. basically means Warren. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. nobody knew is getting in. Yeah. Right. Tom, you agree nobody knew is getting in. I don't think anyone knew was getting in. I think uh, if Warren is going to make it, she's going to have to do something on Medicare for all that is credible. And she hasn't done that yet. And I, for her, I think that's going to be her make or break uh, point. I'm not, I have serious doubts about her as a general election candidate and whether it's a good choice. But I, uh, I think I would put the odds on her if she can get over this Medicare for all, it could be her the killer, though. She is head and shoulders better than anybody else in this field in terms of candidate skill, candidate. in terms of organization. Yeah. And if, if her shortcoming is the plan, and she's got to figure out a way to say, well, of course, we're not going to have 60 seats in the Senate. We're not going to, you know, that that we may have to we may have to settle for something less initially. I mean, she's got to make that turn somehow. Right. right. Uh, boy, we have struck it. Rich, as they say, James. We start with Nancy Pelosi, and then we go to Charlie Cook, 
and Thomas Burnetzel. Uh, I mean, we're, we're being carried today, but I want to thank Charlie. I want to thank Tom, and I hope you'll come back. It's an honor to be with you guys. Now we have our special segment with our in-house researcher, Christy Harvey. Guys, I came to this thinking we were going to talk impeachment or Syria, and I was going to do a deep dive into all these numbers. But um, October, November in Washington, D.C., there's only one topic, and it's baseball. So I've got two (laughs) pieces of research for you guys uh, just to make sure you know. So the first one is in May— The odds of Washington, D.C., the Washington Nationals winning the World Series in Vegas were 1.5%. James, when did you start to have hope that this could actually go through? And what are your thoughts here? It's hard talking to Albert every day and being on that email thread with all those old guys who like complain the whole goddamn way. And I'm like, you know, geez, guys, we're winning games here. (laughs) Uh, I I never— when I became kind of confident, believe it a little bit, was after Game Five. I just said, it's "Just too much has happened. It's just got. It's just got to continue. There's, there's, there's some sports god thing here, and I, you know, it's just like with LSU football. I don't even get nervous on third and eight anymore. I mean, this is, this this ride, this Nationals ride, is like the like one of the best sports rides I've ever had in my entire life. Hunt, what's the image that's going to stick out for you? I'm on all those crazy email threads with you and the texting. I think we have 700 texts just from yeah. this past uh, couple of weeks on this. What's the image that's going to stick well, out Walter for you? Well, Walter Dellinger, Jerry Seib, uh, and Mike Tackett and I were wrong all the time, and Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo were right, thank God. Uh, the image that stands out for me even more than uh, that wonderful night uh, uh, when they uh, won the World Series was that wild card playoff game. Oh, We're down 3-1 to one against the best reliever in baseball and a left-handed reliever who is unhittable. And we had a 20-year-old kid up named Juan Soto. That game was lost. There was no way. We had never won a series. This was going to be the elimination, and he knocked in. The winning runs. I mean, that was, to me, one of the most magical moments in the history of baseball. And this story, as James said, there has never been a better narrative than the 2019 and, Nationals. And I saw the, the Kendrick home running game yeah, in, in Los Angeles. You were oh, out yeah. there. Oh, God. I mean, it was like— Amazing. You know, but, and it's— uh, you know, these guys have just, you know, Rendon and, you know, post seven in and five elimination games had like three doubles, two home runs and a walk. I mean, oh. God, oh my. I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this comment is not coming around again, people. And that brings me to my second piece of two pieces of research yeah. here, which is I live about two blocks from the ballpark and you can hear the crowd roar when things happen. And the crowd roared during a commercial break. And we were like, what's going on? And we realized it was the crowd roaring with booze at a Donald Trump commercial that was airing during the World Series. And my second piece of research is that in Game 5 of the World Series at uh, Nats Ballpark, um, the crowd turned on Donald Trump and started booing. And supposedly the decibel level got up to 100 decibels. Here's a couple other things that are 100 decibels. That's uh, a jetliner taken off. Um, that is standing next to a jackhammer. That's standing next to a speaker at a rock concert. So that's pretty loud. I so, was there that Hunt, night, what do you Chris. think? Yeah, it was incredible. But what they tried, they tried to be cute. What they tried to do was introduce Trump at the same time they were introducing the veterans. Because yeah. they always introduce the veterans, everyone stands. The audience was too smart for him because Trump came on first. And before they had a chance to get to the veterans, that just incredible, resounding chorus of boos. Which, look, you boo at baseball games. You boo everything. That's fine. Those people complain about it are wrong. I didn't like the lock them up. I mean, he began that. It's outrageous when he does it. I, you know, I don't think other people should do it. But the booing was a glorious sound. I... I but I don't understand is he's, he has instincts. Right? He had to know this was going to happen. I mean, he's not that. He, he has survival instincts. I don't think he's very smart or anything like that. And he also is kind of very protective of his image and his strength. And I don't know. If somebody talked him into doing this or said this would be a good idea, that person, is whoever he or she may be, and even if he did it himself, of course, it's not going to be his fault. He's going to blame somebody else for it. That that we know. I want to know who's going to be the fall person here because there's going to be one. What do you think, Al? Who's the fall guy here? Well, I don't know that he didn't like it. 
I'm ah, not sure that he didn't say, take. oh, man, the deep state booed me. I mean, that's utter nonsense, <laughs> but so. a lot of what he says is utter nonsense. No, I may, I, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure he didn't I, I, welcome I it. Yeah, he may have, but you got to be pretty tough, sophisticated person to invite yourself to be booed. You know? Well, <laughs> it just it was. And I also would point out it was Major League Baseball. Uh, that had Donald Trump there. And the Nationals, our beloved Nationals, invited Jose the chef, who has been, you know, one of the great people in the world, to throw out the opening pitch. All right, well, if you'd like to weigh in as a listener on whether or not you should boo the president or not, or if you know what, that's just baseball, uh, let us know at politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. And, guys, that's my research this week. The sophistication of the greatest research in the history of the Washington area, Ms. Christie Harvey, a brilliant, sophisticated, hip, total baseball and that and the, and the chairman of the Kurt Suzuki fan club. That's it. Kurt. <laughs> As we wind down, we have an interesting exchange between two political protagonists, our own James Carville and that great Trump man, Sean Hannity, at last weekend's Politicom convention. Moody's analytics had him at 351 electoral votes in their analysis this week. That's where I think Donald Trump is headed. He will be reelected, in my opinion. Trump got 46.1 in 2016. The Republicans got 44.8 in 2018. It was the highest turnout since women were granted the right to vote, the biggest popular vote majority in the history of off-year congressional elections. So please, this is going to happen. He is going to be impeached. James is saying, well, Republicans are nervous. How do you think the 40 House Democrats in Trump won districts are feeling if Nancy Pelosi and the corrupt, compromised, fact witness in the case running Soviet Union-style impeachment hearings, how do you think? How do you think those 40 Democrats are feeling? I know. I, I, I know. On, I know. On, 20 on. Of I got a question. They're going to vote to impeach him. I know these guys. Uh, okay, a lot of them are friends of mine. Uh, they don't. They don't fear Trump at all. I'm just telling you. What? That's what, the point. James, what crime do you want to impeach him on? For leveraging his influence for personal political gain, which is, if you read the Federalist Papers or you read anything else, is about the most serious thing that you can do. Plus, they're not, they're just getting started. What's the crime? I didn't hear it. What's the crime? Again, what what they're going to impeach him on is self-dealing while conducting the business in the United States. You may say it's not a crime. He will be impeached. What's the crime? Tell us. Tell the crowd. The crime is simply this, that, that you used U.S. influence to dig up something with a foreign government on your opponent. It's dead. If you don't think it's a crime, then go on TV and say it's not a crime. I will go on TV on your show and read you exactly. I have the transcript. I will, There's no quid pro quo. A president has a duty to faithfully execute the laws. Ukraine interfered in our elections. He is, go- he is going to be impeached. Okay? For what? And you can, uh, again, I just, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here, go back and forth. I'll just tell you what it is. If you want to defend that, that's fine. You can scream, you can yell. This is going to happen. And you're just going to be out there screaming at, the moon pays as much attention to the dog barking at it as the Democrats pay to Trump. You can, wow, wow, wow. The moon don't know. It don't hear it. It has no fear. Well, James, gosh, this really was fun today. Uh, And I actually think that uh, listeners may have learned something. We'll be back next week from Heinz Field in Pittsburgh with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and Highmark and David Shribman. Six o'clock Wednesday night, come to Heinz Field. Wow. Be at the Heinz Field and yeah, pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe Antonio Brown will show well, up. Well, we may not be Terry Bradshaw, but we'll still have fun. <laughs> Come see us at 6 p.m. in Heinz Field next Wednesday night, November the 6th.